Ich heiße Ilsa Müller. Das ist meine Geschichte. The Transmissions. Episode 2. Episode 2. Aktuell. Erster Teil. Current. Part 1. Es gibt Wörter in fast jeder Sprache, die man nicht übersetzen kann. In Indonesien gibt es ein Wort, das jemanden beschreibt. There are words in almost every language that cannot be translated into any other language. The Indonesians have a word that describes how a person can tell a joke so terribly unfunny that one cannot help but laugh. The Inuits have a word that essentially means that someone should go outside and check and see if someone is coming. In The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Milan Kundera wrote that there is a Czech word so powerful that he failed to see how anyone could understand the human soul without knowing its meaning. Yet, he never found another language that contained its equal. Butille. This is a Russian word that has no equal. It's a noun, but it's not a noun. It hints at what is tantamount to a hyperconsciousness or an objective analytical mindset. In a sense, it translates as being, but not really. The root of the word comes from the Russian verb to be, but that's not quite right either. The exact meaning contains a metaphysical property that not a single other language can properly convey. In 1933 in der verarmten Stadt von Pensatov, Sascha Travers Vizilikov, der von einer In the impoverished city of Pensatov during the spring of 1933, Sascha Travers Vizilikov, the son of an Irish immigrant mother and a poor Russian land surveyor, opened a small electronics repair shop in the tiny basement apartment of a friend of his father, relying only on outdated second-hand books from a library 12 kilometers from his home. Sasha taught himself everything there was to know about electrical engineering, which during the time of Stalin in Russia was very little. Sasha would borrow a friend's bicycle, one that had no seat on it, to go to the small library on the far end of town, check out the books, and painstakingly hand copy each page in pencil, including the diagrams, onto the white space of used newspapers he'd pull from his neighbor's trash cans. Sasha, a tall, slender boy with a mop of curly, dark brown hair, deep brown eyes, and a smattering of freckles, dropped out of school when he was 14 years old to start working with his mother hemming pants and darning socks for the middle-class Russians who somehow had money for such things. He was quick with the thread and completed his tasks swiftly enough that he would take from his mother's pile to continue working. Sasha contributed nine-tenths of his salary to the family, and one-tenth was hidden away under one of the many loose floorboards beneath his bed. By the time he was 19 years old, Sasha Vasilikov had saved up enough money to begin buying old, broken electronics from the store in the city. 
Each Monday morning, before his workday began, Sasha would walk two hours into town. He arrived in town moments before the stores opened to allow himself time to make his purchases and make the long walk back home before the sun set. He would visit three or four storefronts and either purchase their broken radios and telegraph machines or rummage through their garbage cans looking for abandoned components. He would sparingly purchase a few replacement parts and load them all into a metal trash can bin he'd appended with wooden wheels on the bottom and a broken wooden shovel for a handle. He would spend his savings each Monday and roll his treasure two hours back home over cobblestones and gravel, where he then would dump the units in a tiny rotting cedar tool shed his father had built in their tiny backyard. During the day, Sasha would work with his mother sewing and knitting. At night, he would sneak off and dismantle and reassemble the broken units by candlelight, pulling parts from one to create a working version of another. He rebuilt them on faith, relying exclusively on what he'd read in old, outdated library books because Sasha's family did not have electricity in their home. That was a luxury for the wealthy. So he could not test his knowledge in any practical capacity. He assumed he fixed these radios, but had no way to know for sure and wouldn't for several years. By the time Sasha was 22 years old, he was handsome, outgoing, and confident. After dating for only a short while, he was married to the daughter of an ash collector. That same year, he and his young wife, Oliona, had a son. Sasha also had enough used radios that he was running out of places to store them. That is when he asked his friend's father to let him rent out the lower apartment in a building he owned and use it as a storefront. The apartment was wired for electricity and was near the city. The friend obliged and offered Sasha a favorable rate as a favor to his father. Aliona painted a sign on some of the warped cedar wood Sasha had gotten by breaking apart his father's small shed, the previous home to the heap of broken electronics. Sasha hung that wooden sign above the door to his new storefront. Auf dem Schilde stand. The sign read, Boutille Electronic Laden. Boutille Electronics. Episode 2, War, Part 1 In 1925, a theory was put forth by a famous scientist, which posited that in a very unique circumstance, given the right conditions, by taking a gas of a very low density and cooling it to an extremely low temperature, it could be possible, could be possible, to actually stop, or at least drastically slow down light beams. The idea of stopping light to the layman is abstract and has no practical purpose. 
but to a scientist like Albert Einstein, it could not have been more foundational. Thirteen years after the Bose-Einstein condensate theory was published, 22-year-old physicist Johann Müller was traveling to America to study alongside 15 other Germans who had been sponsored by an unnamed host at the University of California. Hoping to avoid being drafted into military service in Hitler's army, Müller applied for the program believing the odds to be against him, since America seemed to be gearing up for war against his homeland. Nevertheless, Johann and 15 other Germans, along with three Frenchmen, one Swede, one Russian, and two Spaniards, were invited to work in America for what would uncoincidentally be the remainder of World War II. Müller had no wife and no children in Germany, and dedicated himself to long hours and sleepless nights in a small university laboratory where he studied the use of airplane accelerants for what he described as a privately funded division of the U.S. Army. He engaged in very little conversation with his lab mates. Rather, he spent his time meticulously logging entries into his numerous lab journals. As he worked, he listened to reports of military engagements by Germany on a small radio he kept in his lab coat. A wired earpiece ran underneath his shirt into the inside pocket of his coat. This is how he worked day in and day out for years. He conducted silent research for the U.S. military while he listened to the destructive soundtrack of war back home. had a treaty with Poland. Would they act now? At home, we listened in suspense. Adolf Hitler's all-out attack on Poland makes the long-dreaded European war a certainty. Prime Minister Chamberlain of Great Britain gave the Nazi dictator a zero hour for withdrawing his troops from Poland. That zero hour ends now. At this time, we transfer you to London for an important announcement by the British Prime Minister. Up to the very last, it would have been quite possible to have arranged a peaceful and honorable settlement between Germany and Poland. But Hitler would not have it. But a situation in which no word given by Germany's ruler could be trusted, and no people or country could feel itself safe, had become intolerable. Now, may God bless you all, and may he defend the right. In the spring in 1941, an older gentleman was added to Johann Müller's research team. In his laboratory journals, Müller describes the man as confused, rushed, and, quote, a mysteriously alternating blend of stoic and spastic. He had wild eyes, Müller writes, one a deep dark brown and one that was light silvery blue. He wore dirty scratched spectacles seemingly designed to cover them. The old man never spoke above a gravelly whisper. Müller describes him as, quote, old, bizarre, and knee-locked with an unexplainable manner of outdated speaking. In his journals, Johann jokingly referred to this man as Peter Klaus, presumably from the German fairy tale. Written by J.C.C. Nactical, it was officially called Peter Klaus the Goatherd, but most people refer to it nowadays as simply Peter Klaus. Literary and media historian Charlie Flynn. So what you've got is this 200-year-old story that was really unlike most of the fairy tales of the time, written when every story told had a message for children prompting them to behave. Um, allegories at their core, caution tales. 
but not this one. Hansel and Gretel were going to get eaten by a witch because they succumbed to their desire to eat candy, right? So don't gorge yourself on candy. And you've got Little Red Riding Hood, who was almost eaten by a wolf because she went for a walk by herself in the woods. So don't go walking in the woods by yourself. So on and so forth. All of these stories were made to scare the hell out of children. Then seemingly out of nowhere is the story of Peter Klaus, the goat herd, with really no moral. And it's insanely popular. In fact, in 1819, Irving Washington basically adapted the entire premise to write Whip Van Winkle, except that he added the moral of Van Winkle suffering by losing decades of his life in part due to his incredible laziness. Peter Klaus, by contrast, is this goat herd from a uh, made-up town called Sittendorf, and he's out tending his flock when some of his goats run away. He goes looking for them when he hears laughter from a bunch of people playing games near his woods. So, of course, he goes over to see what's going on, and they offer him some wine. He takes a few sips of the wine and essentially falls into this 20-year coma. He wakes up, and he has no idea where he is or when, completely lost all sense of space and time. He eventually makes his way back to his village, and everything is different. You know, he's lost 20 years of his life, and nobody recognizes him. I mean, these are the stories that Germans were telling their kids for entertainment. Anyway, Klaus finally meets up with his daughter, who, of course, had assumed he had died decades ago. And at the end of the story, Klaus is standing there crying, and he says, Are you my little Maria? And his daughter says, Well, yeah, I'm Maria, but I'm not little anymore. And I am your father. I am Peter Klaus. Do you remember me? His daughter runs to him crying and hugs him and says, Welcome back, Daddy. I knew it was you. And the others in the town say, Hey, man, welcome back. Wow, time sure flies. Klaus the goat herd was told less as a moral or fable and more of an anecdote, you know, as if uh, it was based in reality and people were just sharing it with their children as if, like, yeah, so this happened. This crazy legend of Peter Klaus really happened. It was this man, Peter Klaus, who introduced Mueller to the theory of the Bose-Einstein condensate. It's fascinating, actually. I mean, fascinating without understanding its purpose or its function. But what Bose and Einstein hypothesized was the next step after relativity. The state of matter of a dilute gas of bosons cooled to temperatures very close to absolute zero. Dr. August Carlson, University of British Columbia. They did this to figure out what may occupy the lowest quantum state. Only Einstein could attempt to solve the point of macroscopic quantum phenomenon. The problem, of course, with relative applications has always been method. Light travels at a speed that is not dynamic. It is static, and there is no parallel in the known universe, let alone one that can carry mass. What Bose and Einstein created with their theorem was a workaround to the most problematic question ever asked. How? If nothing can ever travel as fast as the speed of light, what's the only other option? And Einstein figured it out. Slow light down. It's absolutely genius. The only problem, of course, is that the theorem was never completed and it was never tested. Never was. There was never a Bose-Einstein experiment. The condensate experiment. The man Johann referred to as Peter Klaus brought research into the lab related to the Bose-Einstein condensate theory for months. Each day, he would ask Mueller, Have you read the research? Each day, Johann promised he would, though it had nothing to do with the study of accelerants. Finally, after working 18 hours in the lab, on a random Wednesday in July, Johann took the scientific studies back to his small apartment near the campus and read through all of them. It took him well into the morning. And as the sun rose that Thursday, 
At last, he understood the potential behind the theory. He wrote in his journal that night, in his native German. Peter Klaus is kein alter Narr. Peter Klaus is no old fool. I have sketched caricatures of him and made folly of him and teased him, though thankfully only in the pages of my lab journals. But this man sees the application of this obscure theory clearly. He has appended and notated the Bose condensate research and modified the formula. He actually modified the formula that Einstein himself created. I've been in the presence of greatness this entire time and never knew. Particle density divided by Rheinmann zeta times 3 over 2. Genius. Klaus also writes something in his margin which baffles me. A name, I think. Heinrich, Rudolf, Hertz. Peter Klaus is a strange man. He might also be a genius. According to his journal, Johann returned to the lab the next day and Klaus was gone. Never to return. <laughs>